Hello and welcome to On Board with Cruise Passenger, a podcast series for people who choose to cruise and those considering a cruise holiday. Hello and welcome to this special edition of On Board with Cruise Passenger. Today, we're certainly on board. We're cruising on Vikings Polaris, the newest of the line's expedition fleet. Polaris carries 378 guests in 189 outside staterooms with Nordic balconies, which means half the window opens to let in the bracing Antarctic air. There are six places to eat, a vast library of books, art and lectures on everything from great exploration legends to marine biology. We're on the way home after 10 days cruising the Antarctic, and a bit like an explorer of old, we're all feeling pretty happy. We've seen seals, whales, birds, and of course, hundreds of the Antarctic's real population, penguins. We've even discovered a new island, and we managed to set foot on the White Continent. Adventure visits to remote regions like Antarctica are growing quickly, with up to 90 ships now offering sailings here. So what's the attraction? With us is David McGonigal, author, historian and expert on Antarctica. The original Iceman, he has visited the White Continent many times as an expert historian or expedition leader. He has also been to the Arctic over 20 times. His 600-page Antarctic and the Arctic books is the encyclopedia on the ice. Welcome, David. Hi, Peter. Nice to be here. So how many times have you actually been to Antarctica and what keeps drawing you back? Uh, the first part of the answer is I don't know. I stopped, <laughs> I stopped counting at 100. But wow. then I actually told someone that and someone I'd known for a while said, you said that to me five years ago. Whoa. So, uh, okay, so, <laughs> so my wife estimates it's around about 130 times. My goodness. So what keeps drawing you back here? Every trip is different. This trip, of course, we had the joy of finding that new island, that new landing site. But seriously, I've been coming here for 26 years. I meet a lot of people who have traveled south with me, and invariably I can think of what was special about their expedition. I can literally, um, if you ask me to list them all, I couldn't, but I was saying, oh, that's right, you were on the one where we had the encounter with the orcas. You were the one where we had the zodiacs and that amazing sea ice. Every trip has something memorable as indeed has ours. Yes, I so agree. In fact, I I can say that I'd be taking away many memories from this trip. So what kind of traveller do you think comes to the Antarctic? I was on the ship once with a journalist who, when we were doing a whole recap at the end, actually asked all the passengers that very question. And everyone just kind of looked at each other and couldn't really answer it. And I said, can I rephrase it? I said, how many people here have wanted to come to Antarctica since they were in primary school and the majority of hands went up. Antarctica is a place you either get or you don't. And in my understanding, I think it's pretty well 50-50 between the people who go, why would you want to go so far away just to see a few penguins? Or why would you want to go somewhere so cold? And everyone else saying, I'm fascinated with Antarctica. I would love above all else to get to see it. So the type of people that come down, that's that whole range. And uh, I think particularly... Uh, I hate the term bucket list, but some people actually, when we landed on the continent yesterday, actually took a sign saying, number seven continent, bucket list, tick. (laughs) Yes, it's a well-worn phrase, but I must say this is one place where it really does apply. And And the other thing I would say is that I really became very conscious of the fact 
but it's a privilege to come down here. Um, you know, we'll talk about um, how many people do come down here later on, but I really felt that it was something very, very special, not just a, another resort to tick off, but actually a real experience. I think that always, always stays the case. The captain said, it's not a vacation, it's an exploration when we started our cruise. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I've worked with an expedition leader that used to hold the sail plan up, which is detailing what's happening every day, and then just tear it up and drop it on the floor oh, Yes. and say it's irrelevant. And as we've seen, where you have to be completely opportunistic. The weather, the ice, everything, you can't just say today at 8 o'clock we'll be doing this because that may well be today at 4 o'clock in the morning we might be doing this because we know by 8 o'clock it's going to be blowing too much. Everything changes. It's it's probably one of the few guided holidays where the leader is completely winging it and you're relying on the skill of him and the captain to actually make the most of the excursion, which I think Mark's done an amazing job of actually pulling it all together so we've achieved as much as we had. Yes, Mark is the expedition leader here. And I must say that was so evident yesterday when we managed to set foot on the White Continent uh, despite the fact that there was a storm coming and despite the fact that there were real ice blocks going past this ship. And there was no doubt, because I was watching the captain on the bridge, that she really was playing cat and mouse with icebergs. She was. Which, which you know, let's hope the owner doesn't hear this, but, you know, was really designed to make sure that passengers got that one final experience of standing on the White Continent. Yes. And it was an incredible feat, I think. So you're right. Mark does a great job. And the other thing I'd say is, talking to people who are thinking about Antarctica, it's real. The thing that brought it home to me was this wasn't some kind of drama put on for travellers. It's the real thing. There really are animals. There really are ice. It really is an adventure. And it really is an experience, which, as you say, you can't necessarily control, which I found really, really interesting. So um, in terms of this particular journey, is there anything outstanding apart from our landing on Antarctica? Uh, as I said, for me, I um, landing in a site where no one has landed or no, certainly no travelled tourists have landed before is an amazing thing. Someone said, oh, how often have you done this before? <laughs> and I said, counting today once. Yes. But I have to say the penguins looked completely confused. <laughs> And the other thing that I, I think was really interesting for me is um, that the that Mark, the expedition leader, again said that it was really important that we experience the moment. I mean, we live in an age where iPhones, we crave to take pictures, to do videos. You know, there, there's even someone on board, I think, um, who um, uses cosplay. In other words, they were dressed as a penguin when they went, went on to the uh, Antarctic itself. Indeed. Do you think that that's, that's really important in terms of travelling, to experience what we, we're doing? Are we craving, you know, some kind of real connection? And do you get that? Probably moving beyond the cosplay, I think we can... <laughs> I, I think we all do. We all want some real travel. And we often think that if we're on a guided trip like this, then that's going to take away the spontaneity. And maybe that's one of the joys that brings me back to Antarctica, is that spontaneity is very much the order of the day that's yes. literally when we're down there that's all there is when things happen we will react to them and we will try to be in the best place to have the best 
chance of having something to react to. And do you find that passengers that come here are really keen to learn? Because there's a really, really strong group of lectures. You've got a, um, an expedition team of 20. Uh, many of them are young marine biologists uh, or, or mammal experts or whale experts. And of course, there's a huge science area here where a lab is actually conducting real experiments and sending real results to real universities and researchers. So it's not, you know, toyland. It's really genuine science. Do you think people are keen to experience and learn that? I know people have always been really keen to experience and to learn as much as they can in the, the days that they're down here. Um, but often what's described as a science program on board is really largely token. And I've been really impressed that Vikings is not token. As you say, this is real science taking place. And I've found that the, the passengers are responding accordingly. So they are loving the science and... Uh, I think the science is adding greatly to their whole experience. You're actually on board as the historian. And I, I must say, you've written a book about Antarctica. In fact, you've written a number of books about Antarctica. And you've been regaling us with splendid stories about amazing explorers and their adventures. I mean, I loved the one about the leader who thought men should pull the sledges instead of dogs because it was more dignified for the men. I really, British really odd. Robert Falcon Scott. <laughs> Did he, did he actually make it or, or not? Uh, he made it there. He didn't make it back. Oh, gosh. I, I mean, I think that's one of the most telling parts of the yeah. stories you, that you, you have been telling us. Um, so tell us about who you think are the great explorers in this region. Uh, I mean, so the names really resonate. We're on the, you know, you, listeners can probably hear some creaking going on. We're actually on the Drake Passage, legendary for its, uh, for its rough seas. Thankfully for us, it's not too bad. But these names, that was Sir Francis Drake, right? So, Yes, I was named up for Sir Francis Drake, who actually discovered the Drake Passage backwards. He came through the Straits of Magellan, a massive yep. storm blew him backwards. He thought he was going to be crashed onto the rocks and found himself on open seas and realised that uh, Tierra del Fuego was not the tip of Antarctica, it was actually just an island. And so no one ever mentions that Francis Drake discovered the Drake Passage backwards. <laughs> Well, I must say, I didn't know that either. Yeah. I and mean, that, that's what's so charming about this kind of thing, that you start to realise that many of these names you learn in your history when you were at school um, actually have a real place in, you know, real discovery. Yeah. And, and if you if you go through names, you have to start with Amundsen. He was yeah. the first to the South Pole. He was the consummate professional as a an explorer. He was also the first through the Northwest Passage. He was also the first over the North Pole. He was in a dirigible, so he didn't actually touch foot there, but he actually flew over the North Pole. And he was just so good at what he did. So Amundsen, of course, I think reigns supreme. Scott, I don't think, was a great planner, and that didn't work out very well for him. But he is Scott of Antarctica. So I was going to say, he has the name, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, that kind of that heroic failure thing. Ernest Shackleton didn't actually get that much done, but he, his care for the man, his leadership, I think, as we look at it through modern eyes, actually puts him very much in the forefront. Uh, of course, there's the Australian contingent too. There was Sir Hubert Wilkins, yep. who was the first to fly over the Antarctic Peninsula and actually work out that it was a solid landmass, well, a landmass linked by um, by glaciers. So, And Sir Douglas Mawson, and if you look at, Douglas Mawson's epic story of survival in his home of the blizzard. Yes. That's yes. that's a remarkable story too. 
Um, they are tremendous stories. Do you think, is there, are there any modern day equivalents? I mean, are people still doing this? I was fortunate enough to host today with Sir Edmund Hillary, and one of the questions asked by a young woman in the audience was saying, it was all right for you guys, the world was largely undiscovered and you can go and do things by yourselves and find new things. And Hillary said, there's still a lot to be done. And he said, particularly in Antarctica. So he said, look south, work out what can be done. There's an Antarctic, um, Australian Antarctic expedition taking place as we speak. Their motto is the last great expedition. And they're attempting to do a crossing of, of Antarctica. There's lots still to do, but it really seems to be kind of ticking off the last boxes. It's not like there's major expeditions left to do because it has largely been explored. And though, so uh, in terms of wildlife here, we've actually had a really, really good cruise in that we've you know, really seen lots and lots of penguins. We've seen lots of bird life. We had a tremendous day with the whales that were following the ship and actually seemed to be performing just for us. What are your favourites of wildlife in Antarctica? And what, what do you really love seeing? Penguins are always great to see. They're just so nice being back amongst them. Each species has its own distinct character. Of course, seals, when you've actually got um, leopard seals around the zodiac, that's a, a great thing to see. Uh, any whale encounter is amazing. And again, with this voyage, actually seeing fin whales, as we did at HO Island, yes. is pretty rare. You know, they're, really? they're pelagic whales. They're normally out here in the Drake. They're not, I wouldn't yeah. expect them to see them so close to land. And also on the way to and from across the Drake, the, the albatross, having a wandering albatross literally outside your window where you can wind your window down, as you say, or is, is just a, a great thing to do. And then the only creature we see the whole way through from the first day to the last your favourites, which is the Cape petrels or the Pintados, the yes. painted petrels, and they, and they're just adorable. And they're great flyers, and they, with the black and white wings, they're just a great pattern on the water alongside the ship. I must say they are fantastic flyers. I've been enjoying watching them uh, all day. Great flocks are flying around the the, uh, the the ship, and you can see them dodging the waves. And uh, and basically, you kind of feel that they're actually very keen to play with us. But the penguins really are the stars, aren't they? They're everywhere. I, well, in our trip, of course, it's the start of the breeding season, so they're just really establishing their nests. I think that's right. Yes. But the penguins don't really make life easy for themselves, do they? So they pick up pebbles and they have penguin highways up to the highest point on the ice, presumably to, so that they're away from any predators. So they have to pick up a pebble and then they waddle up the ice and quite often fall flat on their bellies. They're not really made for the ice. You'd almost think they're not really made for land, and it's not actually to avoid predators because all their predators fly, the skuas and the giant petrels, oh, apart from when they're in the water and there's leopard seals. The main reason they go as high as they do is because it all comes down to real estate. They're trying to get the first rocks that are going to be exposed when the snow melts because that gives oh, them the right. longest chance, the chance to breed early as they can yep. so that the chicks have the longest period to actually fully fledge to be ready for the start of the winter. It's a very hectic time and 
And as you saw, there's only, um, there's a lot of penguins and only a limited number of pebbles. So there's kind of wholesale theft every minute of every day. I must say they're, they're completely charming. And they, they obviously are very, very curious about uh, travellers arriving on their island. I mean, when we went to that undiscovered island, they literally were coming up and just looking at us as we were looking at them, in fact. I think if they'd had iPhones, they would have been taking pictures of us. But they were absolutely charming. Um, you read some stories that some species are endangered. How are the penguins in the Antarctic faring? Uh, on that particular island, on Breakwater Island, the Gentoo penguin colonies and populations are, are doing really well. Um, some of them aren't doing as well because they're colder weather or they have specific food needs and the food needs are being affected by global warming. Ah. So the chinstrap penguins that we saw on Half Moon yep. Island are uh, being particularly affected by lack of food, and so they're in decline. Oh, that's a pity. Uh, they're really gorgeous birds. They are, and they're, they're kind of the, the most feisty of the, um, all the brush-tailed penguins. Yeah. And the Yadeli penguins that we didn't see, but they're largely cold-weather penguins, and as the peninsula warms, they're being pushed south. So um, gentoos, which we saw most places, are doing quite well. Yeah. So um, we mentioned uh, citizen science, uh, and we and obviously on uh, this ship particularly, there are um, quite a large number of um, what uh, what some people call toys. There are submarines, for instance, um, and even helicopters on some ships. Though I'm glad to say, not on this one. Has this changed the way we view the world and wildlife? Do you think? Do you think it'll make a, a difference to the way we, we, we look at what is not a vacation but an expedition? Uh, yes, it actually offers a lot more scope. So first, the submarines actually give us a view that very few people have, and you actually get to go down there and find out that it isn't just dark and lifeless as scientists thought until the middle of the 19th century that the, there wouldn't be anything down here. In fact, there's quite a lot down there and a lot, quite a lot to see. And you also get the chance to see penguins in their most graceful state when they're swimming in the water. Yes. Um, helicopters, uh, there's very strict regulations on where and when helicopters can fly and how f close they can fly to particularly the penguin colonies. So what they really do is extend access. So you can go to some place where maybe there's a penguin colony 50 kilometres inland or across the fast ice and the helicopter can take you there um, that's particularly true for the emperor penguins in, in Snow Hill Island. But um, helicopters are just so intrusive. And yes. I've actually been at a base which was doing resupply by helicopter and had a lot of penguins around the base, and it was just complete panic and chaos in the penguin colony. And I'd never, ever want to see that again. So I'm, like you, I'm quite glad that we're on a ship that doesn't have, have helicopters. Yes, I must say, our journey... Um... Um, in the submarine was really a fantastic experience. I, we did manage to see a fish, but we saw lots and lots of plant life on the bottom. And what I really liked was that you could come back to the ship and then sit down with the scientific team and they would just go through your pictures and identify your pictures. So there was real involvement there that I, I felt was very genuine. I mean, I'm sure they've seen these plants a million times before. But on the other hand, you know, I think there's great satisfaction in knowing what you're seeing and then having someone expert explain exactly 
you know, what its significance is and how it's faring in the world. So you feel you're coming away with some knowledge. Yeah, and a lot of the photos that people have of, of whale tails, which is just a, a photo of a whale fluke for them, uh, they can do positive identification and recognise the individual and know where the whale individual is and where it's been. So that's yes. the, the Happy Whale program is actually doing very genuine whale identification. Your photo of the fish without a head was less <laughs> useful, Peter, I must say. Yes, but I did get a, I've got to say that I did get a whale tail into the Happy Whale project and it was sent off for identification. Everyone seemed very excited by it. So I'm Good. very hopeful to discover that that's Henry the Whale or, or whatever type of yeah. whale it is, indeed, as you say. Well, it was a humpback. Oh, it was a humpback. It was a humpback. Oh, excellent. Which particular humpback? We don't know his well, name as yet. I will just say it's Henry, and that will be that. Mm. Um, <laughs> so we know that um, there is enormous amounts of interest now in exploration and in adventure cruising. I know that you've uh, you've mentioned a number of times how many cruise ships are heading our way, up to 90, I think, in a season now. Um, is this something that we should be concerned about, and how do we deal with it? I particularly think we should be concerned about it, and I've written some stories um, about that because there's only a limited number of areas that we can go. And Antarctica, originally people were coming down on basically superannuated Russian research vessels. You certainly didn't want to spend any more time on the ship than you could because it wasn't a particularly comfortable place to be, so you wanted to be off the ship and doing stuff all the time. That I no longer think can apply this 90 vessels does include yachts, and yachts kind of operate independently because they're, they're small and they've normally only got... This is like super yachts. Yeah. yeah. And small yachts too. Oh, okay. So, so maybe four or six people or, or super yachts, and you can halve the number because with super yachts, they have another super yacht that carries the um, the staff and the crew, and then there's the, really? the guests. The guests are on one, Gosh, the staff and crew are on no idea. And joining <laughs> one, and that's a whole new, different thing. I think it is largely unsustainable unless everyone bites the bullet and realises you have to do more on the ship. And being on the ship in Antarctica is not a hardship at all. If you look at that afternoon, that amazing afternoon, when we were just surrounded by sea ice in the new Maya Channel. Yes, really and, beautiful. And it was just, yeah, it was one of the most magical scenes I think most of us had ever seen. Unforgettable. And, and that, was, that was on the ship. The whale sightings, a lot of our best whale sightings have been from the really stable platform of the ship. Yeah. And also on the ship, not just the, the talks, but you've also got the science program. So there's, I think, making things a mixture of doing excursions and being on the ship is the way to go, which is, and again, why I've been very keen on being involved with Viking, because Viking's taking that to the next level by saying when you're on the ship, there is being on the ship is, can be almost or just as rewarding as being out on the Zodiacs or being on shore. Yes, I mean, I think what I've found is that there is that great mix. So you might go out onto the ice for an hour, uh, and that would be like 40 minutes of walking um, through the ice, looking at penguins, looking at whatever wildlife there is, and actually just feeling part of the scenery, and then coming back to the ship and with your pictures and being able to talk to somebody about the experience really expands the experience. So you're still living it. Yes. And you're, when you're talking to somebody who's able to explain what it all means and, you know, what yeah. you've seen. So rather than doing interpretation on land, we're doing it back on board the ship Correct. and kind of yeah. adding in the time of that. And I don't think you can go past, apart from the fact that 
from all the ships I've been on, I think this is the most beautiful. And the food is astonishingly good. I remember yes. my very early days on Russian research ships where the food was not quite at this standard. <laughs> he said politely. Like we <laughs> couldn't get lettuce in a Shwaya, so we would sail without lettuce for a month. Wow. Yes. Look, I totally agree. I think it's a very interesting mix uh, that they've got on board this ship. And I think the whole ambience of the ship is really designed to make you feel that this is a special area and you should think about it. Uh, I think Viking is very sensitive to the fact that it's a culturally special place. So they provide you with hundreds of books that you can read uh, about the, many of them yours, I'm sure, <laughs> about uh, Antarctic exploration. And I think the pictures around the ship, and there are dozens, if not hundreds of pictures of early exploration, really humble you when you look at the way those guys managed to get across the ice. I mean, many of them in sort of torn sweaters. I, you know, I spent weekends in Kathmandu buying my special inner layers, uh, whereas they just seemed to be, you know, they had a pipe in their mouth and they've got a ripped jumper and a coat on and snowshoes that look as if they've been bodged up in the garage. Really amazing, courageous and quotations, people. Quotations in the lift from Robert Falcon Scott saying, exactly. the weather's really nice today, it's just minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so it's yes for historians it's a bit of a problem because there's so much information on the walls of this ship that I sometimes think <laughs> that I'm completely superfluous to a requirement. Yes. Uh, and the other thing that I found really interesting is that there's not a library. In fact, there are books everywhere throughout yes. the ship. So all the every area you go to, and there's so many like nooks and crannies, and they've all got. A wide array of, of historic books, of modern exploration, of the wildlife books. It's just remarkable that you can go somewhere, sit down, and then actually look at the shelf and find out which is the book that's most appealing because you're probably going to want to read about half a dozen of them at any given place. Yes, exactly. They've actually managed to make uh, picking up a book quite inviting. Yes. I mean, many of them are large format books, particularly wildlife photography, that are just really gorgeous yeah. and do absolutely excite you to the idea of seeing these animals and going on land. But there are politics at play in Antarctica. Obviously, there's a wealth of minerals here, and there's a creaky old treaty that, uh, that you've alluded to that holds this place together and makes it neutral. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think many people were quite surprised that that's all there is protecting Antarctica. Goodness, where do I start? I, I, do, I had a talk which I used to give about how Paul Keating saved Antarctica, and you're actually touching on this now. Okay, let me do a very quick summary. After World War II, there were very strong territorial claims by everyone. Australia claims 42% of Antarctica. Wow, that's um, great. Because of Douglas Mawson's exploration. There's overlapping claims from Chile, Argentina, and Britain over the Antarctic Peninsula. Not only because it's the most habitable part of it, but also because it's below South America, and it's where Britain did a lot of work from the 1820s onwards. Base burned down at the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula in Hope Bay, a British base. When the British returned the following year to rebuild it, Argentinians fired shots over their heads to drive them away. The only shots ever fired in anger in Antarctica. A Chilean professor of jurisprudence suggested the Antarctic Treaty, which you actually take Antarctica out of the territorial equation there was talk about maybe putting it in the UN, and thank goodness that didn't happen. The Antarctic Treaty was formed, and the Antarctic Treaty has worked really, really well. So 
a friend of mine was down here with the US Geological Survey in the 1960s, the height of the Cold War, and he was working with Russian scientists collecting uh, meteorite samples. And so even when Khrushchev's banging his, his shoe, shoe on the table, on, yes, at the UN. Um, yeah, the, they're working closely together, and some of his closest friends are from that time. So, And the cooperation between the scientific bases is, is total or certainly has been total. So the US will say, hey, we're bringing something down but it would be better if we can land it at the Italian station. The Italian station, that would be great. They say, if you're coming, can you bring this down because we're trying to get a new tractor down. <laughs> and, always, and there's actually a thing called Comnap, which is actually, they don't even have to go through their governments. All the Antarctic base managers have their own association to actually coordinate the science that's going on. So that's, that's a great thing. So what the, is the actual we, treaty that we have? The, the treaty says that Antarctica is a continent dedicated to peace and science. And that was signed by those parties you mentioned. And that's been expanded. Yeah, it was signed originally by a small group. I think it was seven or nine. And it's now signed by a large number, I think 50-something. So the Antarctic Treaty is really solid. But what I was going to say is that mineral resources have been found, particularly rare earths. Yes. Uh, where we were a couple of days ago, on the Bransfield Strait, there have been um, oil deposits discovered by German exploration. There was talk about actually setting up something to work out how they could exploit Antarctic's mineral wealth. And the Antarctic Treaty nations effectively leave it up to the Antarctic Treaty Organisation to run the place. Right. So when that came before, all of them just said, yeah, yeah, it's Antarctic Treaty, we just sign off on that. When it came to Bob Hawke's cabinet, Paul Keating looked at it, and my understanding is he said, why would we want to open up Antarctica to mineral exploration. He said, first off, last wild continent in the world. Correct. And second off, we've got Australia, a whole continent of minerals we're trying to flog. Why would we open another one? Um, <laughs> really good point. A is, bit self-interested, yes, but never yes, mind. Indeed. So, but then what happened from that was Australia pushed that. They managed to get France involved. France were trying to do something to celebrate 200 years since Bastille Day. Keating actually had a meeting with the French president. They weren't, they still weren't really getting anywhere. They were trying to push it. And then the Baja Paraiso, I don't know if you remember the ship that ran aground in Alaska and spilled a large amount of fuel oh, yes. and killed whole seal colonies and yes. all the rest of it. That came to the White House to George Bush Sr. He said, we have to do something to try and recover our reputation, which was just really badly tarnished by that. Someone said, well, the Australians and the French have got this idea about locking Antarctica away so that there can't be any mineral exploration. He said, let's get on board. And once the US came on board, right. that became the Madrid Protocol of 1984, and that actually locks Antarctica away from any exploration, exploitation. And, yeah, and the problem is that we've got some modern nations that are expanding their presence here greatly, particularly China, I may say. Really? Yes, oh, hugely, in terms of number of bases, everything they're doing. And they seem to be wanting to push the envelope of what the Antarctic Treaty nations can do a lot. So right now it's all holding really firm, but we have to hope that that continues. We heard from our expedition leader again how each of us as travellers could become ambassadors for the region. Having experienced it, we would go home, talk about it, tell our stories, and by doing that, 
basically spread the word. Um, do you believe there's a real part to play, a, a positive part to play in the popularity of tourism? Absolutely. I think most people come back from here almost evangelical about the, the, the yeah, wonders of I think of you're right, actually. Yeah. And they tell more people. And if there was no one down here but scientists, as there used to be, it's kind of out of sight and out of mind, but it's not now. There's a very strong interest in it, and that's not just the, the nature shows, but just about everyone now knows someone who's been to Antarctica on a holiday. And that's, I think, in terms of an ambassadorship to establish Antarctica as a place that really is worthwhile preserving is remains very strong. And I might add to that that when tourists started coming down to Antarctica, they found out how terribly environmentally unsound the base practices were, the way the scientists were running the base. The Australian bases used to just bulldoze all their rubbish out onto the fast ice during winter and then when the, really? when the ice when the ice melted it fell to the bottom of the ocean. Now they've got to go and actually dredge all that up because it's no longer acceptable. So tourists it wasn't so much Greenpeace, it was tourists. It was the, the wives and, and daughters of US senators coming down and seeing how the places were that actually um, made the scientists clean up their acts. That's so, excellent. So literally from the very start of Antarctic tourism, it's had, a, it's had a really positive impact. Obviously, we're trying to work out how we minimise our impact on the wildlife, but certainly I think overall Antarctic tourism has been a, a very much a force for good. Excellent. So... In terms of the future, are you upbeat about Antarctica and its abilities to continue to host so many people? I'm, I'm generally very up, upbeat about it with some trepidation. I, uh, I think that IATO, the um, Association of International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators, needs to be stronger, but it is actually a, a, an organisation of commercial operations, so it's got some pressure on itself. And I think they need to be strong and actually bite the bullet and say we have to restrict access, perhaps limit times ashore, things like that. There's a whole series of regulations in place, but with the number of vessels that are down here, I think that that's going to get pushed more and more and more. Uh, on the the national side, I'm I'm hoping all literally circum Antarctica, all the nations who are closest to Antarctica are very strongly dedicated to protecting it. So that's Chile, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, and obviously South Africa. And so it would be hard for someone to come down without being able to use ports of any of those countries. They literally have to fly sail from one end of the world to the other oh, to get it done. So you couldn't go back and refuel. If you so that's the leverage, really. I think that will very much be the leverage, and I'm really hoping that that's what, what applies if anyone decided to try and breach that and the question I've often been asked is what happens if someone like say Richard Branson decided to build a hotel down here and that's I think a probably, I think, really good question yeah. if I may say so. and I think probably <laughs> Richard Branson's environmentally sensitive, sensitive enough that he wouldn't consider doing that but if some individual did decide to do that they would be if you'll excuse it completely frozen out <laughs> by, by all the nations surrounding it and find they just couldn't run it because they wouldn't be able to get a flight well, they wouldn't be able to get a flight south of the equator to okay. actually bring them down. Well, that's very gratifying to know because it sounds like a terrible idea. Um, I must say, though, that I have been impressed by the cooperation. I love the fact that the captains of most of the ships have their own WhatsApp group so they can actually tell each other where they are. And indeed, our captain 
when she vacated one spot early, passed on to other captains that she'd now left it, and if they wanted to move their passengers in, they could. That kind of cooperation on the ground is very strong, isn't it? Completely, and that happens with the expedition leaders too, where they'll be saying, hey, I'm thinking of changing my plans around and going here. I see you're there, but if you're going to not be there, let me know first and I'll, I'll grab that and that'll work out better for my sail plan. And the other thing I probably should mention is that under the Antarctic Treaty, any ship, including ours, can be stopped and boarded by any treaty nation. Really? Can come on board, check to make sure that we're not discharging anything we shouldn't, that we're following all the right protocols for rubbish and all the like. So literally, uh, and that happens yeah. quite regularly. You'll actually just haven't come ashore. They'll just look at our, we have to have a complete log of, of what's happening with all the garbage and all the, basically anything that's going to be left over and where it is, how it's stored, what we're going to do with it. Yes, really important. And I, I think uh, as passengers, we were very conscious of how um, how uh, the importance of the environment is, is uppermost in everybody's minds. Uh, we had all of our outer layers vacuumed before we were allowed to go ashore. So we had to bring everything down to be vacuumed. Our boots were uh, washed before we left the ship and then disinfected and washed afterwards to make sure we didn't take anything onto the next penguin colony. So I think there's a lot of that that I think passengers start to see and feel the importance of making sure that these things are spread. So I, I think that's really uh, one of the most gratifying parts of, uh, of this kind of expedition. Passengers take that message away as well, I think. Yeah. And so, they carry with them the idea that, that, that it's very important to preserve. Yes. So biosecurity is an increasingly important thing. There have been plant species introduced into Antarctica um, from the northern hemisphere. And that's probably almost certainly from um, seeds caught in Velcro, where people have been hiking somewhere in the, oh. the tundra. And then yep. the seeds are in the Velcro and then they come off down here. That's the reason why... We get you to pick everything out of out of the Velcro. And Viking is actually organised so most of the gear doesn't have Velcro. Yes. So we can actually avoid that problem from the start because you can wash everything else down. Another problem which we have to face right now is bird flu. Avian, avian influenza is actually um, having a really substantial effect in the Northern Hemisphere. And we really want to make sure that where we don't introduce it here, there are some birds that fly from one pole effectively to the other, and we can't do much about them. Yep. But we have to make sure that we aren't part of the problem. So finally, if you had a message now to anybody listening who is contemplating a visit to Antarctica, what, what would you say to them uh, in terms of planning their visit? Come to Antarctica, the sooner the better. You'll experience a place which is like nowhere else on Earth. Literally, it's a place where humans are irrelevant. And that makes it a special sort of wonder that even after 26 years of coming down here, I'm still just filled with wonder every time I'm down here. Brilliant. David McGonagall, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and, of course, your book is available. It, you'll find it secondhand now. It's in print, <laughs> but you'll find it hopefully on Amazon or in, in second-hand bookshops. And thanks very much, Peter. And of course, uh, anyone who wants to read more about our Antarctic uh, journey can uh, get the next edition of Cruise and Travel magazine, which is on sale in March. Read about it on cruisepassenger.com.au. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>